The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Acts 15, 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by replacing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to welcome you. Uh, Like Cole said, we are Citizens Church. We're a brand new church plant here on the east side of Charlotte that exists to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with God. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get to Acts chapter 15. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Citizens. If you're new, want to welcome you. Uh, glad that you were able to join us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. You can grab that. If you have that Bible, we're on page 538. 538. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to talk about circumcision. It's going to be great. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful. And we're grateful for beautiful weather. We're grateful for sunshine that feels like it's just been missing for the past two months. We're, we're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your goodness to us, your kindness to us, that we do get to gather amongst your people. And that we have your word, that we have worship, that we get to sing to and about you, that we get to remember that we're redeemed, not by our own works, not by our own heritage, not by our own going about and doing, God, but about we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Would you help us to know that tonight, to remember that tonight? God, if there's somebody in here that's never heard it, would you help it just fall on their ears tonight, that they'll believe, they'll repent, they'll trust in you for salvation? And for those of us or any of us that have been following you for a long time, God, would you help make this anew? Give us a new love for, for Jesus, what he's done for us. Help us to believe the gospel that we're so prone to forget. We love you. Paralyzing Son, Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a question tonight before we dive into Acts chapter 15. My question is this. Have you ever gotten in a really stupid fight? Anybody else? Have you ever gotten in just a really foolish argument? I mean, one of those arguments where it seems like halfway through the fight, you forgot what you're even fighting about, right? But you're so into the fight now that there's like, there's no way I'm going to let that other person win because now I'm fighting and I don't remember what we were even arguing about in the first place, but by golly, I'm going to win. 
you ever been in one of those foolish arguments, maybe with a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a roommate, a coworker, a parent, whatever it may be, have you ever had a really foolish argument? I think most of us, if we're being honest, would say, yeah, right? We all know that sometimes in life we fight over things that are just not worth fighting about. And we also know on the flip side that sometimes there are fights worth fighting. Sometimes it's worth standing up for something. Sometimes it's worth putting ourselves out there and facing some relational conflict or some relational tension because this is worth fighting about. What we get to see in Acts chapter 15 tonight is the early church experience one of their first real fights, one of their first moments of tension and conflict. And what we're going to see is that this was a fight worth fighting because what they're fighting about is the very message of the gospel of Jesus. They're fighting about the reality of, the question of, are people saved, not based on what they've done, but based on grace through faith in him and what he has done. You're going to see here that it's a fight worth fighting. It's a fight they're willing to step into. And what we're going to learn from Acts chapter 15 is that this is a fight we must fight today as well. And so my big theme where we're going tonight, if I could summarize it in one phrase, it would be this. We must fight for the gospel of grace that is good news for all people. We must fight for the gospel of grace that is good news for all people. We're going to break that down into two statements. The first part is that we're going to fight for the gospel of grace. And then secondly, we're going to fight that the gospel is good news for all people. Acts chapter 15, let me take us into it and, and kind of set us up. So let's start in verse 1. Acts chapter 15, Luke writes this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, so here's what's going on. In Acts chapter 11, four chapters prior to this, the author of Acts, whose name is Luke, introduces us to a church in a city called Antioch. And this church in Antioch was really the first Gentile megachurch. It's kind of a center for the Christian movement. It was planted by a bunch of people that Luke doesn't even name after the persecution following the death of Stephen that we talked about a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 7 and 8. The church is persecuted, they scatter, and Stephen says basically a bunch of people that's not even worth naming go to Antioch, start a church. And it becomes kind of this hub of missionary movement throughout the early church, so much so that they're the sending church for Paul as he goes about all of his missionary journeys. It's here at Antioch that Christians are first called Christians, or literally those who belong to Christ. What has happened here is that some folks from Judea, which is a Jewish region nearby, have heard what's going on at Antioch, and they go down and they tell these new Gentile, Gentiles are basically everyone who are not Jewish at that time, they tell these Gentile believers that, hey, in order for you to actually be a Christian, in order for you to actually be saved, to be a child of God, you have to be circumcised. It's a weird thing. Why did they do this? So what's going on here is that a lot of the first Christians were Jews. And Jews had been raised on the Old Testament law. And one of the most important Jewish Old Testament laws was that every male had to be circumcised. This was part of God's covenant promise that he made with a guy named Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. So in Genesis 17, God says, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless the world through you. And one of the physical signs of God's promise to Abraham was that every male descendant or everyone who would later convert to Judaism would have to be circumcised. It was a physical representation of an inward reality that they were giving themselves to be a part of the people of God. It was setting them apart 
from the rest of the world. So a lot of these Jewish Christians were teaching these new Gentile believers, hey, if you want to be a part of this, if you want to be a child of God, you got to still follow this. You have to be circumcised. What they're arguing about is two points of contention and two questions that need to be answered. The first is that do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Or rather, do you have to do something in order to earn right relationship with God? Is the gospel actually by grace through faith, or is there some other amount of thing that has to happen? The second question they're wrestling with is do you have to become Jewish and follow the Jewish customs in order to be a part of the people of God? It's these two questions they have to get right. Pick it up in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, good gospel fighting, good gospel conflict, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, this is not a small, out-of-the-way detour for Paul and Barnabas. They're preaching the gospel up until this point. They've been starting churches. People are coming to faith left and right, and they're like, hey, this is so important. We have to settle the gospel. It is so crucial that we're going to pause all of our missionary activity. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to settle what the gospel is. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, brought great joy to all the brothers. They came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they get to Jerusalem. They tell the Jerusalem church, this is what God's doing. He's saving people. So many Gentiles are coming to faith. And some people are stoked. They're like, yes, this is what we wanted. The gospel's supposed to spread. But there's another group within this church who still belong to the Pharisees, this Jewish ruling religious order and society who are saying, no, 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 that's, that's great and all, but did you tell them about the whole circumcision thing? Did you tell them they have to follow the rules and laws of Moses? In response to this conflict, you're going to see two responses from two Jerusalem leaders, two leaders here in this church. The first, of course, is from Peter, because throughout the Bible, he always speaks first. And the second is from James. So let's look at Peter's response. So what he says, verse 6. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, again, still fighting, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. All right, here's what's going on. So Peter stands up, middle of this Jerusalem council, a bunch of early church elders in a room saying, do these Gentile non-Jewish believers have to be circumcised or not? And Peter gets up and says, guys, let me remind you of what happened 10 years ago that we see in Acts chapter 10. And what happens is in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a vision and a visitor. All right, stay with me. A vision and a visitor. In this vision, this kind of trance, as he describes it, God shows Peter this sheet coming down from heaven. And on this sheet, there are all types of animals and birds and reptiles and all this different stuff that until that point had been unlawful or wrong for Jewish people to eat. As a part of the vision, God says to Peter, hey, rise, get up, and kill and eat. Then he has a visitor. After he wakes up from the vision, this messenger sent by this Roman government official named Cornelius says, hey, Peter, I need you to come. I need you to come to my master's house. I need you to come to Cornelius's house and tell his entire Gentile family about God. So Peter goes, he preaches the good news of the gospel, and everyone in the house of Cornelius gets saved. What happens in Acts chapter 10, 
is that God uses the vision and the visitor to show Peter, I am doing a new thing. That up until this point, you might have thought, hey, this was about ethnic identity. This was about a certain people group were the ones who belonged to God. But now I am creating a new people for myself, not based on ethnic identity, not based on what they do, not based on their heritage, but based on faith in me. Peter's summation of Acts 10 is this in 34 and 35. He says, he opens his mouth and he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter says here at the Jerusalem Council, you guys know, 10 years ago, God used me to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he continues, verse 8, Acts 15, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, notice that, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, this is the key verse, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We believe they will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as we will. There's kind of two key verses in Acts 15. The first is that verse 11. If you're the type of person who writes in your Bible, underline that, star it, highlight it, great verse to memorize, to hide in your mind and in your heart. We believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here's the first thing we have to fight for as a church. We have to fight for the gospel of grace. To fight for the gospel of grace. Here's what's going on. At that time, there were 613 Jewish laws that the people of God had to follow. Think about that number, 613 laws. Circumcision was one of those 613. So it's an important law, but it's just one. There were 612 others that they had to follow. And I love Peter's honesty here. He starts by saying, hey, remember Acts 10? Remember what God did with the Gentiles? Also, remember this law that you're telling them to follow? I don't think I can really follow it myself. And also, I don't think y'all are doing a great job. And by the way, our fathers, aka all those guys you look up to and talk so highly about, like Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon, none of them could follow it either. So I have no idea why you guys think that they're going to follow it. I grew up as the youngest of three brothers. Anybody else have older siblings? Right, so something happens when you're the youngest, especially when there's some years removed, is that all of the rules and restrictions that your parents give to the older brothers suddenly just kind of go away when I got older. I don't know about you, it was a great experience for me. So when I was 18 and a senior in high school, I could do way more than my brothers were allowed to do. Right, and Peter's saying here, hey, all those laws that you guys think you now got to pass down on the younger brothers, we couldn't follow them, they can't follow them. Why do you think... You need to put this yoke on them. In fact, he says that wasn't even the point of the law. Romans 5.20. Paul, yeah, Paul says in Romans 5.20 that we can't measure up. The whole point of the law, one of the big reasons for the law of Moses was to show that we are law breakers. This is one of the reasons God even gave these rules, gave these 613 Jewish laws. One of the reasons he even laid this standard was before us was to show you can't meet the standard. They couldn't meet the standard. You can't meet the standard. There's no way these Gentiles are going to meet the standard. We just can't do it. The whole point of the law was to show us we can't live up to the law and we need someone who could. His name is Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We can't follow it and even if we could, it wouldn't save us. Ultimately, we can't cleanse ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. It's not our works. It's not our deeds. It's not our physical circumcision or rules following or customs or regulations. It's by grace through 
faith. I must fight for the gospel of grace through faith. So Peter stands up and he says, hey guys, you know, no, you got to fight. But here's the thing. Not only do we have to fight this fight with other people who want to come in and say that it's by works or something else, we have to also fight this fight within our own hearts. I would argue one of the biggest arenas where the battle of the gospel of grace versus the gospel of works doesn't take place externally, but takes place internally. Within our hearts, within our minds. See, this whole controversy starts not with non-believers, but with believers. Right? This is Jewish Christians that are in this church. They're not a bunch of people just kind of infiltrating the church that don't actually love Jesus. This is Jewish Christians, people that at one time had put their faith in Christ that are now tempted and pulled away for themselves and for other people. Hey, you got to do some stuff. You got to follow these rules. You got to follow these laws. You got to follow these regulations and, and whatever. And they're saying, hey, you got to do that. Even though we at one point were saved by grace through faith, now it's different. We got to follow this law. You have to follow this law. And here's the thing. This is what always happens. We constantly within our hearts drift back from grace to law, from relationship to rules, from approval given to approval earned. It's the, the theologian Martin Luther said it this way. He said, our hearts are hardwired for works-based righteousness. It's like just within us, our hearts just want to bend and go that way. So this week, uh, I took both Lindsay and I's cars to get our tires rotated and aligned right? This is just adulting 101. What you got to do, you got to get them aligned. If you don't get your tires aligned, you know what happens? You're driving down Independence Boulevard on the way home from church and your car starts drifting and shifting. That's a dangerous road as it is, right? You got to fight it. You got to keep it online. And Martin Luther is saying our hearts naturally just want to get out of alignment with the gospel of Jesus. Our hearts within us just naturally want to pull and pull and pull. Hey, hey, I know you think you were saved by grace through faith, but what are you going to do to keep God's affections? What are you going to do to keep his love on you? What are you going to do to keep his approval? I can just, let me show you this examples in your life. So parenting, right? This is how you know you're starting to operate as a works-based righteousness rather than a grace-based righteousness. Think about parenting, right? You have a day where your kids are just awesome. They're so obedient. They sleep in. They're just smiling. If you have multiples, they're playing together. Everything's happy. And you're like, I am awesome. I'm the best parent ever. I should write a parenting book or at least have a podcast, Right? And then you have that day where your kid's just screaming their heads off all day, and you're like, what's wrong with me? And your whole identity as a parent just seems like it's crushed right there and there. Think about work, right? You have that day where you're just crushing it at work. You're just killing it. And you're like, I'm awesome. My boss thinks I'm awesome. Everything is great. And then you have that day at work where it's like, can I do anything right? What happens? Your identity gets crushed. I'm never going to be good enough. I don't even know why I have this job. I can't. Or think about uh, comparative holiness, right? Think about as you see someone else in our church and you're like, hey, I, I don't read the Bible that much, but I read it way more than they read it. They got problems with their spiritual disciplines. I'm doing great. High five, Jesus, you must love me. And you have that other person in group who fasts like every other day. And you're like, what? Yeah, God, you're probably gonna use them, not me. Think about your, your battle with lust, with porn. Two weeks, I, I've, I've said no to sin for two weeks. God, yeah, uh-huh. I screwed up yesterday. I can't know. Why would God ever love me? We just do this over and over and over again. Our hearts are so prone to drift towards works-based approval, works-based righteousness, thinking that God loves us based on how we're doing or how we're performing. It's works-based righteousness, and it's works-based perseverance. Because sometimes this is sneaky. Right? Sometimes we'll look back on our moment of conversion where we put our faith in Jesus, and it's like, yeah, absolutely, God saved me that, that moment by grace through faith, but now it's up to me to keep myself in his approval. 
That was up to me to make sure. We have awesome days where we're crushing it. We think God loves us more and we have terrible days where everything's going bad and we think God's like, what the heck is wrong with you? All of that is anti-gospel. All of that is anti-Bible. All of that is anti-Jesus. The true gospel of Jesus is not only do we enter into relationship with God by the grace of Christ, we also maintain and continue in his approval and his affections fully by the grace of God. Right? I love this, this analogy uh, Pastor John Piper uses where he talks about it like a courtroom. And he says that sometimes we like to think that we're in this courtroom and God looks at us and he's like, yeah, 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 you're guilty. You did some bad stuff, but I forgive you, I guess, because of Jesus. So like, come on in. Piper says, no, that's not true at all. What happens is in that courtroom, God doesn't say, yeah, you're guilty, but I forgive you. So go and sin no more. He says, God looks at us. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he says, you're not guilty. So the picture the Bible gives is not that we're neutral with God. It's that actually we have the full approval of God and he views us as righteous and holy and washed clean and made new and forgiven. That the Bible says that if we are in Christ, if we believe in him, he actually views us as he views Jesus. Some of y'all have grown way too cold and have heard that way too much. Totally. Let me remind you on Tuesday and you're having that really rough day, and you've given into that temptation that you just can't seem to say no to, when your kid is freaking out, when you and your spouse are off, when you're feeling like I'm not being a good friend and I'm terrible at my job, let me, let me hear, I need you to hear this, okay? God views you as he views Jesus. That's true on Wednesday. That's true on Thursday. That's true on Friday and Monday. I forget. I forgot Monday. Sorry. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's true all the time. And we're so easy to be like, yeah, I know the gospel. Tim, move on. This is gospel 101. This is basics. Three weeks ago, you told us to not forget this. But we need to keep reminding it because our hearts want to forget all the dang time. But he views us as he views Jesus. Holy righteous, forgiven. And we have to fight within our church. We have to fight within our hearts to remember that it is a gospel of grace. And here's the deal. A gospel that says God's approval of me rises and falls with my performance is no gospel at all. A gospel that says that God likes me more if I'm crushing it as a Christian and he's, he's just frustrated and upset and doesn't welcome me and doesn't love me if I'm not doing great. That's not the gospel. The gospel is always fully, if you are in Christ, you have the affections and love and welcome of God because he views you as he views Jesus. It's good news. It's the gospel of grace we must fight for. So Peter says, verse 11, we believe we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Let's go to James, verse 12, Acts 15. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So James gets up to speak. He's one of the leaders in the early church. He's actually the younger brother of Jesus. So what he says, verse 14, Simeon, which is Peter's Jewish name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James here points back to an Old Testament prophecy from from Amos 9. What he's showing is that God is fulfilling his original plan to bring together a people from, for himself from all nations, both Jew and Gentile. And, and many theologians point to Acts 15 as kind of this turning point and gospel explosion bomb that goes off in the early church. 
Right, so when they finally settle it here in Acts 15, that the gospel is good news, that people are saved by grace through faith, the mission of God just takes off like wildfire. So right after this, Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent out, and Paul's going to start planting churches in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and Greece and Rome. And it's, the gospel is going to hit every people group, every age, every nation, every demographic. The young and old are going to get saved. Men and women are going to get saved. The highly religious and the anti-religious are going to get saved. Rich and poor, all these people, married, single, they're all going to get saved. The gospel just spreads like mad because what happens is the church finally gets it. It's Christ and Christ alone who saves. And then that compels them to take the gospel to the world, to take the gospel to the nations, because the gospel of grace and the gospel for all people are linked together. Here's the deal. The gospel is available to all because salvation is not based on your works. It's based on what Christ has done. The gospel is available to all because it's not based on your family of origin, who your parents were or who your grandparents were. The gospel is available to all because it's not based on your job title, how much prestige or power or influence you have. The gospel is available to all because it's not based on your income, the size of your house or your bank account. The gospel is that Jesus and only Jesus saves and that compels us to take the gospel out of our city, out of our state, out of our country into the nations who have not heard the good news of Jesus. Right? If only Jesus saves, if Jesus and Jesus alone saves, then what should we do but go and tell or send or give or pray? But not only does the gospel compel us to go to all parts of our globe and to go to the nations, the gospel that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone also compels us to go to different parts and people within our city. That's the second thing we have to fight for. The first, we must fight for the gospel of grace. Secondly, we must fight for the gospel of grace that is good news for all people. We must fight for the gospel of grace that is good news for all people. I love what James says here in Acts 15, 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, what he's saying is let's not put unnecessary barriers between these people who are not like us and the good news of Jesus. He said again, that's what he's saying in verse 19. Let us not put unnecessary barriers between these people who are not like us and the gospel of Jesus. We must have, Citizens Church must have a deep-rooted conviction that the gospel is good news for all people. So our church should be for all people. We must have a deep-rooted conviction that the gospel is for all people. So our church should be for all people. And I think verse 19 is a helpful diagnostic to ask. Right? Are we creating unnecessary burdens between different groups of people within our city from hearing the gospel of Christ? Right, so hear me on this. The gospel is a stumbling block. The Bible says that. It's a hard message. The gospel says that you must admit that I am a sinner, that I can't save myself, that I can't do it on my own, that I can't make myself right with God. The gospel necessitates humility. Right? The ability to say that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. We have to give up our entire lives to follow Christ And we have to ask the question, am I or are we adding barriers that don't need to be there such that I lose focus on the mission of God that he calls us to of making disciples for all people for his glory? So we have to ask, if we believe as a church the gospel is good news for all people in our city, does our church reflect that? A really easy way to ask that is to look at demographics. Right, so if 55% of Charlotte is non-white, and the gospel is good news for all people, does our church reflect that? If 14% of our city lives below the poverty line, and the gospel is good news for all people, 
Does our church reflect that? If 60% of adults in our city are not married, and the gospel is good news for all people, does our church reflect that? If the median age of our city is 34 years old, and almost half the population is over the age of 35, and the gospel is good news for all people, does our church reflect that? And are we doing anything outside the bounds of Scripture to keep people from hearing the good news of the gospel? And here's the thing. I'm doing everything that I can as, as your pastor under my power to try to not create barriers as our church as a whole, right? So I'm thinking about who's in leadership. I'm thinking about the sermon illustrations that I use. I'm thinking about all of it, what we're doing for events, how we're doing them, what time we're doing them, if we're charging for them. Like I'm trying to filter what we do and how we talk as a church to ask the question, are we putting barriers up that help or hurt people from hearing the good news of Jesus? And like we talked about a few weeks ago, you are we. I am they. Right? And if you miss that, what that means is that if you call this your church family, if you're a part of your church, you have to ask the question, not what do I want to see citizens be about, but what do I want my life to be about? Am I willing to step into this? Am I willing to take steps forward? Let me say it strongly and directly and with love. It is hypocritical and wrong of you to be frustrated with the lack of diversity in our church. And I mean in every way. Race, age, socioeconomic level, in every way. It is wrong and hypocritical for you to be frustrated with the lack of diversity in our church and not be willing to live a diverse life yourself. I'm going to say it positively. We will never have a diverse church until we start living diverse lives. Listen, I, I know our church, and I know your heart, and so I know that so many of you really care about this. And that's a good thing. Right? I, I love that I don't have to get up here and convince you that you should care, right? that you care about God's heart for all people, that you care about God's heart for the nations, both globally and in our city. I know that you care, and you want to see our church grow in these things. What I'm asking to do is, are you willing to sacrifice yourself to make that happen? Do you have lives that have intentional or unintentional barriers and boundaries to you ever interacting with anybody who's a little bit different than you? Is your life set up in such a way that you will never interact with anybody that's not 24? Is your life set up in such a way that you will never interact with someone who doesn't make the same amount of money or more money than you? The list can go on and on. I'm asking us to say, hey, I, I know that we care as a church. I want to affirm that. I know it's a good thing to care. It's a good thing to want more diversity for our church to reflect our city, for us to have more gray hair, for us to have more people that are non-white. It's a good thing to want that. I'm saying, are you willing to sacrifice and actually change the ins and outs of your weeks and the ins and outs of your lives to actually live a diverse life yourself and to see in your life what you wish for our church? not just pray about it, but to take steps. And this is something I'm actively repenting of this morning as I was getting ready to preach this, actively repenting of my lack of this in my life. That it's hard, that it's uncomfortable, that I have so many things that I see in my own heart that I'm trying to bring before the Lord and want to bring before you guys, my own preferences, my own doubts, my own uncertainties. I got to bring that before the Lord and I got to be honest and I got to say, God, I, I'm, I'm rebellious against you. And by lip service, I would love to say, yeah, the gospel is good news for all people. But my life doesn't reflect that. 
Most of the people I hang out with are between the ages of 22 and 35. Most of the people I hang out with are white. Most of the people I hang out with are lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class. Most of the people I hang out with live in the wedge. And i got to repent of that. We as a church have to repent of that. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take time. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take some work. Verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. Everyone has been strangled and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James says, hey, let's not trouble these people that aren't like us from believing the gospel, hearing the gospel, but also let's encourage them that the church they're entering into has some cultural sensitivities, that these Jewish Christians have some things that because of tradition and history are going to make them uncomfortable or hurt their conscience. And so what he's calling for here is unity. He's saying, hey, let's be a church that are unified in the midst of our diversity, where both sides learn to dwell well together. What happens after this is that the Jerusalem Council agrees. They send a letter back to the church at Antioch. They affirm salvation is by grace through faith. The good news of the gospel is for all people. There's much rejoicing, and the gospel continues to spread. Here's where I want to close this tonight. It is so easy to drift from a gospel of grace to a gospel of law, from a gospel that I have the full approval of God because of Jesus to I have to keep and earn the approval of God. It's so easy to drift. And once that begins to drift, then so does our heart that the gospel is good news for all people. And this is actually exactly what happens to Peter. So Acts 10, he has a vision and a visitor. Acts 15, he's declaring that they will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But you know what happens between Acts 10 and Acts 15? A passage called Galatians 2. Galatians 2, Peter and Paul are in conflict, and Paul's going to write this. He kind of tells the story of what happened. It's kind of long, but follow with me. Galatians 2, verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Peter's hanging out with Jewish people, a bunch of, hanging out with Gentiles, a bunch of Jewish people show up. He shrinks back, afraid of what they're going to think. And Paul says, hey, no, remember, the gospel is good news for all people. Remember, the gospel is by grace through faith. Remember this. And he calls them out on it. Because what happens is when you forget the gospel, you start wrongly believing that it's by works through effort, so only certain people can come, and if you don't measure up, you're out. But if you remember and hold fast and get the gospel right, you know that it's by grace through faith so anyone can come because we're all sinners in need of a Savior and the cross levels the playing field. So Paul confronts him. And then a few years later, you have Acts 15, 11, where Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We have to fight. We have to fight in our hearts and in our church for a gospel that is good news for all people, that anyone can come but it's through Christ and Christ alone. One of the ways that we fight is every Sunday.
Every Sunday when we take this bread and this juice, this little cup, this is one of the ways that we fight for the gospel of grace that is good news for all people within our church because we remember the body of Christ. This little wafer represents Christ's body given and broken for us. We take the juice, which represents his blood, which was shed for us, that the perfect, holy, righteous, never broke the law, never sinned, never rebelled against God, son of God, gave up his life and took our sins so that we could have his righteousness. The great exchange, the great substitution, Christ took our sin and he gave us his right standing with God. Every time we gather, we take communion as a way to fight and remember the gospel is by grace and is for all people. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we would ask you not to participate in right now, simply because you'd be saying that this is true for you and it's just not yet, but we would love to tell you about Jesus. We'd love for you to, instead of taking communion, to take Christ, and we would love to have you take communion tonight for the first time as a believer. We pray for us, then we're going to sing, and we're going to respond, and we're going to remember Jesus together. God, thank you for the cross. God, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ given up on our behalf that Jesus, though he was perfect, though he was without sin, your scripture says, became sin for us. And thank you that not only did he take our sins so that we could be forgiven, but he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's a, a crazy mystery that I don't, I don't want to move past personally, and I don't want our church to move past, that you view all who trust in Jesus, you view us as you view him. What a mystery. What a grace that we can't comprehend. What a well that we could swim in for the rest of our lives, never fully comprehending. That we were rebellious we were sinners, we were running, we wanted nothing to do with you. And when we were your enemies, you sent your son to die the death that we deserved, taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. God, it's crazy. God, would you chip away by the power of your Holy Spirit at our callous hearts towards Christ, but also our callous hearts towards the world? Would you break us for the things that break your heart? And we have this, this promised future glory and revelation where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are celebrating you. And I know so much, so many of our hearts, God, want that for, our, for now. We want that for our, our church. We want that for our lives, God. So would you give us the courage to repent and to turn and to change both our intentional habits and our unintentional habits? Help us do the courageous work that we need to do. And we need you. And we need your spirit so badly. Lord, we love you. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.